Welcome to the Mindful on Purpose podcast. This is a safe space where unexplored topics on gender-based violence, intimate partner violence, and child endangerment are discussed with field experts to increase awareness and improve care for vulnerable women and children. My name is Christina Blackburn, and I'm the host. And today we have with us Miss Dolores Dell Robinson, an advocate, caregiver, counselor, policymaker, netweaver, mother hen, superwoman, organizer. These are some of the labels given to her at the grassroots level. After over a decade of working in a diplomatic mission, in 2001, Dolores went back to her roots, the women's movement, where over 30 years, she has been an active member, first with Cistern Theater Collective of Jamaica, then with Women Working for Social Progress, where she has been a member since 1988 and currently serves as a council member with responsibility for administration and finance. And seven years with Advocates for Safe Parenthood, Parenthood Improving Reproductive Equity, Aspire. Welcome, Ms. Robinson, today. We'd like to talk a little bit, we'll start off with, um, you are in Trinidad, Tobago. And so we'll start off a little bit talking and learning about um, your heritage and the community, um, because a lot of us don't know much about the CARICOM. So if you can tell us a little bit about your community and your background and your heritage. I will start by saying that I am a Jamaican by birth. I have been living in Trinidad and Tobago for 35, almost 36 years. I started out in Jamaica working in the women's movement, first with Sister in Theatre Collective. And of course, when I came here, you know, it was easy for me to sort of reintegrate and get involved in the women's movement. The community that we work with is primarily women who are survivors of domestic gender-based violence. We also work with women who are what we call members of the vulnerable community. So it's women who are survivors of domestic gender-based violence, women who are impacted by HIV and AIDS, and also women with mental health issues. We in 2018, we set up a transition home, and we know specifically a transition home and not just a shelter, where we house women and children who are running from a domestic violence situation. And of course, the COVID pandemic did not make it much easier for us. We saw an uptake, almost 100% uptake of women who are seeking somewhere to go. How did you become interested in helping victims of domestic violence with starting the shelter worth working with this community? Okay, I, I would say, first of all, I have a passion for helping and helping women and children. As a survivor of domestic violence myself, I have an intimate understanding of what women go through, you know, First, you know, you're in a violent situation, you need to get out. You know, and getting out is never an easy decision to make. I mean, I know that was not the case for me. 
it took me maybe about six times of leaving and going back before eventually I made up my mind and say, you know, soon I am doing this for my son, but soon there won't be any way to protect that son that I'm trying to protect. So I left. Very good. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And we know a lot of organizations get, you know, started like that based on someone's personal experience and, you know, them feeling that there is a need um, for them to do more in this community. So we appreciate your work. So tell us a little bit about the landscape in the CARICOM and in Trinidad as far as domestic violence goes. And I know you said during the pandemic it increased, but what would you say, um, would you what do you think might be some some things that can be done to end violence against women and children in trinidad like what are some of the programs that can be put in place what are some of the educational things that can be done to help women realize they're in these type of situations and maybe make different choices okay um i would say we have there's a lot of education going on. There's a lot of education going on in, in Trinidad and Tobago surrounding domestic violence. Yet the number, you know, tends to jump. And I mean, I pulled down some statistics here, but to me, it is alarming. Because when you, for example, realize that in 2020, there were 40 domestic violence-related murders. You know, it's not just reported cases we're talking about here. It is murder, right? We had 22 females and 18, 18 right? That alone is, is alarming. For 2021, we had over 800 reported cases of domestic violence. The Trinidad and Tobago Police Service, they, you know, they set up, I think it was about 13 years ago, what is called the Victim and Witness Support Unit. Um, it's an arm of the TTPS. It's run by the police themselves. And that's where, you know, victims and survivors would go for counseling, for whatever systems. And they have some alarming numbers in terms of over the 13 years that they have been in existence, which is over 26,000. Now that's a lot. That's a lot. Here at our transition home or the organization groups, because groups is the NGO and of course a transition home, which is a safe space, is a subsidiary of groups, Trinidad and Tobago. A lot of our clients come from other stakeholders who would know about the service that we provide and the TTPS themselves, because when someone goes to the station to make a report, of domestic violence and their lives or their children's lives are in danger. We are the one that the TTP has called in to these ways. So it is really alarming. And I can tell you that this statistics is very high and it has been increasing since the onset of the pandemic. Because for example, in between 2020, in 2020, the then commissioner of police, based on the figure he gave, it was increasing by five over 500 percent now that is something that you know we just have to do something to 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 curb but what do we do we have been edu educating the woman we have been providing space for the woman and i can say 
I don't think we have enough space. We, I don't think we have enough space. And apart from that, the ones that are there that are run by the NGOs, they need assistance. You know, they, they need manpower, they need financial assistance. So we, again, what can be done? We just have to continue and supply more manpower in, in terms of, you know, assisting the women and children. We also have to get more, I would say, medical practitioners involved in, in, in this fight that we're in. It is not just the law enforcement, it is also the medical practitioners, it is also the social workers, it is also the grassroots organizations, the NGOs. We all have to come on board in order to curb this pandemic that is domestic and gender based so I want to just clear up some terms that you said. So the TTP are the police officers. That's what they're called. Yeah, they, it's, yeah it's a Trinidad and Tobago Police Service. And in <clears throat> 2001, I think, or it was 2020, they set up a gender-based gender -based violence unit out of the TTPS. And they also have what the child protection unit out of the TTPS. So these are police officers who man this area. And okay. I think it was because of the amount of reports that they were getting. Makes sense. And this, this, unit, this unit is headed by Superintendent Guy Hacking. And your organization, which is Groots, is an international organization that sets up shelters internationally? Uh, Groots, which is grassroots organizations operating together in sisterhood, is that this came out of the Wairu Commission, which is based in Brooklyn, New York. And we have uh, 52, uh, what I would call chapters in 52 different countries, with Trinidad and Tobago being, being the, um, the newest member. We were, we were set up in 2014, officially registered in 2016. Got you. Okay, great. Thank you for explaining that. So let's talk about um, when did your shelter start? And let's talk a little bit about the services that you provide there. And, and this, this is actually more of a transitional housing. Um, yes, so you, let's talk a little bit about the programs that you the offer. Mm -hmm. Yes, and the impact you Okay, okay, groups started was the organization started in 2014, as I said before, and we were registered, incorporated under the um, legally in Trinidad and Tobago in 2016. We started doing work on the ground that we were in the area that we were based, which was on Tuna Puna, which is the eastern side of the country, just outside of the University at the West Indies, which is in St. Augustine for geographical. We are in the in the municipal corporation of the Tuna Punapia Regional Corporation. So we started doing a sort of a fact-finding mission as to what's going on on the ground. And what we realized is that once a woman or someone is, I'm sorry, is living with HIV, they are ostracized. Once a woman has an issue of domestic gender-based violence, or they are of different sexual orientation. They they either jobless or homeless. In most cases, both. So.
So we set up a transition home in 2018, October of 2018. That, at that time, it was for male and female. But then with the pandemic in 2020, we realized that we were bursting at the seams. I mean, we had a home that could house 14 adults and seven children. Prior to going into the pandemic, which was March of 2020, we were adult only facility. But because of the pandemic and what is happening, we have to shift our focus from being an adult facility to a facility that will accommodate women and children because they were now running for their lives. So we opened another home and this home now was specifically for women and children. So we had two homes. We had a home that could have housed seven women, eight women and four children. And there, then there was another home, the main home, the one that we started with, that could have housed 14 adults and seven children. And when we say adults and children, we're talking about uh, like a, what we call a double bed where a mother and child could sleep in the same bed, in the same bed. We have mostly bunk beds in beds. Unfortunately, due to financial constraints, we had to close that facility. So we are now down to just the home that can house eight mothers and four children. As far as- In the, in the home, sorry. Oh, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, in this home, we realize that, okay, the clients, they come in for four months, and instead of just having them there, giving them your psychosocial support, you know, making sure that they take their medication for those who are on medication, providing them with food, we thought that, you know, we should also equip them, prepare them for reintegration when they go back out. So we set up a program that is called Survivors, Food Empowerment, Economic Development and Sustainability, which has a three-phase component, three-pronged component. The first component is that we teach the woman how to grow short crops and vegetables in discarded items. So it's the old tires, it's the oil keg, you know, like what is used in the fast food where they buy the oil in bulk, the container from there. It's the ordinary water bottle. It, it's even the, you have a jeans, because jeans is a sturdy material, you have jeans, you cut the jeans and you plant in the jeans itself. You have an old market bag, you plant, you plant in that. And that's what we, we started that program in August of last year. And we have reaped so far three, four crops in the, there. And we were even able to help uh, family who was um, victim of fire, disaster. You know, we were able to offer them some food back. So that's phase one of the project. Phase two of the project is that we want to teach them the methodology of hydroponic, of growing vegetables. I mean, there's a limit to the amount of vegetables you can grow in water. So we build, we build, we, we actually have a model PVC, PVC hydrophonic um, standard we build, which we show them how, how to do that. And it could be just a piece of maybe three feet long PVC pipe. You bore the hole in it. You, you don't have to buy the expensive basket. You use the ordinary Starotex cup and you put, 
control it if you put the water in it. And that you can grow your pacho, you can grow your lettuce, you can grow your cane. So that's phase two. Phase three is where we want to set up an aquaponic where we teach them how, how to rear fish, freshwater fish. So that one is phase three, which is uh, later on down. Right now we are in phase one. We are also teaching the women basic sewing. So you know how to sew, you know, your bed linen, your curtain, you know, clothing for your children. We teach them basic that. There's also this technique that is catching on, I think it is worldwide now, where you dip the cloth in cement, you mix, you mix, you mix the cement, you dip the cloth in it and put it like over a pocket, stretch the ends and let it dry and you get a nice flower pot. So this is what we're, we're teaching them. In addition to that, we bring, we bring in, you know, people to help them with their skills and to help them to develop them themselves. So that, as I said, that, that is phase one, phase two, and phase three. That's amazing. And I applaud you for putting all these amazing programs in, in the place. And as we were talking earlier, I don't think that many of the shelters here in the state do these type of programs with the women so that they have these skills um, once they leave the shelter, that they can then sustain themselves. So, so this is very exciting uh, to hear about. Yes. So um, what are three of the challenges that you've experienced so far outside of funding? We know, every, you know, funding is a, a big issue and, you know, a lot of nonprofits right now are struggling as far and as, and as well as the NGOs. But outside of that, uh, what will you? What would you say is three of your challenges currently? Uh, I would say challenge number one, which ties into funding, is being able to feed the clients when they come in. Right. So of course, if it ties back, we can't we can't deny that. The other challenge that we face is having enough volunteers. We need to have more volunteers with required skill, like, you know, a psychologist, you know, someone who is a social worker. Yes, we have social workers on board, but that's, you know, we just have two social workers and a counselor. That's not enough when you have to follow up with the class. So let's say we have a full house and we have eight women that need counseling, ongoing counseling for the first two and a half months that they're they're, they're in the home. We don't have enough, so we, we really need to have some more, you know, stakeholders get, get, get on board. The other area that we have challenge in is being recognized, if we should call it that, by, let's say, the medical practitioners, the medical institutions, sorry, not practitioners, institutions. So, for example, we have someone in the home who... We do have people who are suicidal. So we have someone in, in the home who, let's say, is in a state where we need to get the ambulance to take them to the hospital. But of course, we want it to be as confidential as possible. We would like to see something in place where we have this link between the nearest hospital where we can take someone there and they don't have to sit in the waiting area 
for two, three hours to see a doctor. So we would really like, like to have that back in place. How is like safety as far as the clients go and things like that? How does how is that for you guys? Is that a challenge at all? We we have never had a problem with with safety. Uh, we had one client. She actually she was the first mother with children that came in the home, and she started you know calling her husband who was the perpetrator. And the house manager at the time called and said that you know, he looked someone walking up and down the street, which means the person knows exactly where and what I did. I removed her from that home and take her to the other home. What we do is you're in the home, we talk to you about your safety and the safety of the other clients in the, in the home. You know, once we know that someone like, okay, a classic example, we had someone who came in with the son, the police brought her there, and the police promised that they would assist in her getting food out, but that did not materialize. Naturally, she got fed up and she left the room. But what she did, she called her husband, and the husband came and picked her up. Right, and when the husband came and picked her up, you know, I could not do anything because we cannot hold her against her will. And four days after the police called me, another police station called me and said, you know, she was beaten the night before and she needed to come. And I said to the police officer, you know, I'm saying, I'm sorry, I cannot take her back because the space has been compromised because the husband, who's a violent person, knows where the home is. We're going to take her and put her back in the same home. Or even, let's say, we transfer her. The husband knows where this home is. But... In terms of the home, we do have like cameras 24-7. So, you know, that, that's some sort of help. We are in touch with the home on a regular basis. When I say on a regular basis, it's like three, four times for the day we would call the home to see what's going on inside there. I am there myself on a weekend. I go into the home on a Friday afternoon and I leave on a Monday morning. I spend time. I make sure that on Sunday I cook for the home. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, good. Good to know. So tell us a little bit about like the rewarding parts of your job and the things that, you know, just kind of warm you up inside and make you glad that you're doing this work. When I see the clients who, you know, come to us wounded and battered and depressed, you know, are able to go on their own. We had a young girl who came to us and she was referred to us by another stakeholder. And when she called, I said to her, you know what, we can continue talking tomorrow. And she said, Miss, I have nowhere to sleep. She was calling, calling from a, a cafe. She said, I have nowhere to sleep. So I said, where you slept last night? She said, on the bench on the compound of the University of the West Indies. I said, no, no, no. So I asked one of the clients in the home, I said, please go and meet her where she is. And I called, I told her. To say this is a person who's coming home. When she came to the home, we did not have space for her. So at that time, we had what we call a dropping center, which is a space where someone can come, browse the net, relax, and you know, we offer them like a, a plate of food or something like that. And I put her for two days in the dropping center, <clears throat> the dropping center to to stay. 
and she was with us for 18 months now bearing in mind that four months is the maximum time but at the end of the four months we would do an evaluation and we realized okay you're not ready to go back out then we we would keep you and we this young lady was she ended up like a daughter to me when she came there she did not know how to use a washing machine the most she could make is a cup of tea. And she stayed and we, you know, worked with her. As I said, <clears throat> sorry, I took her under my arm like my, my daughter. And if I'm going out, if I'm going in the market, she would go with me wherever I'm going. She was there. And today she is out. She left the home last March. She is out. She's on her own. She's able to cook. She bought a car. She told me she had an apartment. And as recently as November, when she was having water issue, she called and she said, Mom, I have some clothes to wash. And I said to her, well, the machine is not working. She said, I know your machine working. And she came and she washed the clothes. After this morning, she, she, she messaged me. So it's when I see you know, people like that who are able to go out and move on. We have clients who would go, who, who come to us, they are back home with their children and they will be calling us, I have this friend, can you help this friend? These are the things that warm my heart that you know, what I'm doing is not in vain. That's amazing, great story. Question, how are the medical centers in Trinidad I know you said there's a university and there's a, a hospital. How are they interacting with the shelters? And are the doctors there trained on, on what to do and what to say when victims come in? Do you have a sense of that there? Yes, I do. Because I remember, I think it was two years ago when someone, she had a mental health issue and a relative of hers called me and told me she was at the local hospital. I thought she was being admitted. So, of course, I got, I said, does she have clothes? She said, no. She just went to the doctor and the doctor sent her there. Not knowing the magnitude of the situation, I went and I got, like, a nightgown. I got some fruits for her. And when I got to the hospital, I realized that she it is she was not there because of the mental health issue but because she was beaten by her partner she went to the doc her doctor who is a mental health practitioner and the doctor sent her to the local hospital which is what we call mount hope and when i spoke to the doctor the doctor told me that they have been there since nine o'clock this was now like seven in the night she, has, she went to the doctor about 9, about 10, she went to the hospital and they were there waiting on the police to get a home to put her because they don't think she was safe for her to go back home. And I, I asked for the doctor who is in charge and when he came, I introduced myself and I told him, I say, I have a home, I will take her. I say, as a matter of fact, the doctor who sent her here, is someone that is in our membership is one of our members at the time he was on 
and she was released in our care. So they, they I mean, they do, they do, I would say, assist, sympathize, you know, when issues like this comes up. They, because what they, the doctor did was to reach out to the domestic violence, the TTPS, gender-based violence unit, right? And the police was, and while we were there, the police actually came. I mean, came late, but we came. Because I suppose it would be difficult. They have to find some way to take her. They can't just take her from the hospital to the police station. They have to take her to the home. So getting somewhere sometimes is a challenge. And of course, you know, with now being we're in a pandemic, that is even so a little bit about we have like a couple minutes left i wanted to ask you like what are your top three things that you think any frontline professional clinician police officer should know about domestic violence and um and supporting women and children who are in these situations Okay, first of all, domestic violence is a cycle, right? It starts, we have what is called the honeymoon period, and then it goes back. So it goes round and round and round. Uh, women are not re eager to say that they are being beaten. They will tell you things like they walk in the hall, they fell, that type of thing. So you have to know the, the telltale signs and the underlying issues. Uh, you should also should also know where to send someone. You know the institutions, the places that are available. So you you you, you should be well well knowledgeable as to where you can you can send someone in the event that there is a domestic violence situation or it's a mental health situation or it is just someone who has has a suicidal tendencies then you know you should should should, should know, know, know these things for the medical the medical doctors i would say you know have like social medical social workers at hand that you can do referrals to don't just send the person home. We had a case where someone attempted suicide, she overdosed, they pumped her, she was hospitalized for a week, and yet the same institution sent her home with tablets. Now, that should not be the case, right? What you need to do is get her onto a medical social worker someone who can you know support her in psychosocial psychosocially and this particular woman we invited her to come to the home and she kept on saying you know she wants to spend some time with her mother just the same mothers whose tablets she, she she swallowed and eventually she said she will, she will spend Christmas as Christmas gone in the home. She would like to spend Christmas in the home. She never lived to see Christmas two days before. Two days before Christmas, she was a dead woman. She committed suicide. I'm sorry to hear that. So you so you so you know you send her out and you give her the documents and say to register in the clinic. But 
who is there to support her. She needs to have a support around her. Yeah. You know, let her stay there, stay in the hospital. Yes, you have problems with beds, but let her stay there until you get a strong enough support system around her. Because had there been that support system, as a matter of fact, I don't think she should have been sent back home because the danger is right there. The tablets are right there. Yeah. And they need people more tablets to compound the whole situation. So, you know, you have to be able, as I said, know the different stakeholders, know the different agencies, and reach, reach out to them. And don't release the client just to maybe another family member. Well, we are going to wrap up here. And I appreciate you, Ms. Robinson, so much for talking with us today, telling us a little more about shelter and educating us. Also educating us on the CARICOM, which is like the Caribbean area and the Caribbean islands, and also Trinidad and Tobago, and telling us a little bit about your culture and the programs that you work on, which are all amazing. And I thank you so much for your work. Uh, and if we, if anyone wants to reach out to you or get in contact with you, how can they? Okay, um, roots, that's G-R-O-O-T-S-T-T-2 at gmail.com or our WhatsApp number is 1-868-383-8464. Thank you. Or, or we, we, we're on Facebook. What's your Facebook, yeah, your Facebook, Facebook um, um, name? Groots, Groots Trinidad and Tobago, or you can just do Del Roberts. Okay, very good, Ms. Robinson. Thank you so much. I'm Christina Blackburn. I am the host of uh, Mindful on Purpose podcast. I'm also the founder of Speranza Human Compassion Project, which is a nonprofit where we educate, we develop courses, we do research around gender-based violence, intimate partner violence, and child, child endangerment, and also Vanguard Medicine, um, where we um, train doctors, nurses, and frontline clinicians on how to be more impactful with victims of domestic violence and their patients who are experiencing violence at home. To find me, um, you can find me at vanguardmedicine.com or speranzaproject.org. I'm sorry, and it's actually vanguardmedicine.org. Um, or I, we're also on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, and um, we're also on Twitter. All right, thank you so much for joining us today.